And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. As we're rocking and rolling through the week, learning how to explain the defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence, and uh, got a fantastic show in store for us. We're going to have a good friend, guy who I have a lot of fun talking with. It's just a uh, wealth of information, Matt Swain from the Sunrise Morning Show on AWTN. It's going to be joining us on the other side of the break. We're going to be talking about St. Polycarp, whose uh, feast day, I believe, is today. So a very important apostolic father, um, a disciple of St. John, and also a bridge uh, between the apostles and a later early church father, who's also very important for defending the faith, Irenaeus of Lyon. So... uh, we're going to be talking about St. Polycarp and what he has to say to us and also about his martyrdom as well. And um, so that's going to be coming up on the other side of the break with Matt. Can't wait for that. That's going to be a ton of fun as always. And on this side of the break, talk about fun. We're going to jump into our Finding the Fallacy. Today's Finding Fallacy, by the way, is the abuse of fallacy. And also we are going to meet an early church father, so today, today's early church father, um, pretty obscure father, uh, not really used a lot in apologetics, but lately, especially with uh, papacy debates, he's become more and more important, more and more in the spotlight. It is St. Optoptus of Melibus, St. Optoptus of Melibus. I would venture to say probably most of the Catholics out there don't have a, uh, you know, a, a, a venera- special veneration or love for St. Top- Toptus. Probably never heard of him before, but uh, his writings that have come down are very valuable in terms of explaining and defending the faith. So lots and lots of great stuff in store for us. And as always, I want to begin the right way by welcoming you, all of you, to the dojo. So welcome aboard, everybody. Begin with our live stream audience and also with all of you who are listening on radio around this great country of ours and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, yeah, that's the place to go, folks. Uh, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. You can access hands-on apologetics, all our past programs. You can download them. You can share them. You can tell people about them. It's a great way to do evangelism. And uh, also, uh, you can access all the other shows, too, as well. We thank you for that because uh, by you um, accessing these, telling people about it, you increase the reach for the show and it enables us to help people who need to know this information. So it's up to you, folks. Uh, you are part of our mission here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It's through you and through your generosity that we're on the air and we are able to bring great guests like Matt Swain to you to talk about things like this. So it's all good stuff. Um, let's see. If you have a question for Matt, you can always give us a call, 888-526-2151. That's 888-526-2151. Or... 
if you'd like to send me an email, love to hear from you. Uh, the email, the official Dojo mailbox is questions at handsonapologetics.com. And that's the best way to get directly in hold with me, the sensei. And I love helping people. And I also love hearing about what's going on in your life. And uh, sometimes you, uh, I get emails where people say, hey, I'm into this discussion. Can you help me out here? And if I don't know the answer, I will definitely put you in contact with resources that do know the answer. And that's really, as defenders of faith, that's really all we're called to do. I mean, it's great if you know the information off the top of your head. But there's so much with the faith. There's just so much there. That you, one person can't possibly know everything about the faith. And I think if you ask the most learned person you know, do you know everything about the faith? If, the, if they're honest, they'll say no. Okay. But you don't need to know everything. What you need to do is be able to point them to resources that can help them. And so I often feel like being an apologist is kind of like being a pharmacist or a doctor. Uh, people come in with a, some sort of uh, difficulty, and I recommend resources for them, you know, just like uh, giving meds, dispensing meds, right? So um, this, is, uh, this show is uh, one of those resources that you can share. And uh, also, um, as you know, um, we also promote lots of other great resources, too, that you can use to help other people. So uh, that is um, basically all I want to say on that subject. Why don't we go to finding the fallacy for today, which is the abuse of fallacy. Abuse of fallacy, by the way, is just a subset of a larger category or family of fallacies known as ad hominem attacks. The argument uh, attacks the position by appealing to despicable qualities, moral turpitude, love that word, and overall loneliness or meanness of a person who holds the position. So um, it's just one of those rank-and-file uh, ad hominem attacks, the abusive fallacy. Um, I, I've also heard this being applied to um, the threat of force also, uh, or threat of abuse, you know, believe this or else type uh, fallacy. Either way, you know, uh, what's important here is how you diffuse it. It's just like when you diffuse any ad hominem fallacy, you absorb and redirect. So you say, okay, even if all that's true, even if I'm morally despicable, blah, 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 then you refocus. Nevertheless, what about this? What about my arguments? What about this evidence? What do you make of it? And uh, that is the way you diffuse the abusive fallacy and or the ad hominem attack. So that uh, concludes that. Let's go to meet our early church father for today, who is St. Optoptus of Melibus. St. Optoptus of Melibus, the Donatist. Excuse me, Donatist. Were the logical heirs of Anabaptist sacramental practice of St. Cyprian of Carthage. Uh, the Donatist schism began about the year 312 A.D., and its immediate antecedents going back about 303 A.D., and it lasted for about 100 years, and it was confined uh, largely to North Africa. When the Sicilian uh, was uh, when Sicilian was consecrated Bishop of Carthage in 311 or 312 A.D., a rich widow named uh, Lucilla. Um, with her own personal animus and spite against them, succeeded in her design of 
having a considerable part of the Carthaginian uh, clergy refuse to recognize the validity of his consecration on the grounds of his unworthiness of the consecrating bishop, uh, Felix of Aptunga, in particularly being accused of having surrendered the books of Scripture during the Diocletian persecution, a charge which was subsequently found false. The dissenting party chose a lector, uh, a person named Majorinus, as bishop, and he was consecrated by the Donatist Césaire Negre, and uh, to be identified as Donatus the Great, who gave his name to the schism. Uh, it was only in the latter days of the schism that both parties were forced to uh, forth, brought forth their greatest advocates. Parminian uh, was writing on behalf of the Donatist, and Optoptus of Melibus, today's early church father, was on the Catholic side. Little is known about St. Optoptus except from his works against Parmenian, Bishop Melibus of uh, Numidian Africa presumably was born about the year 320 and lived uh, up to about 385 A.D. And uh, uh, let's see, um, the history of literature of the African church um, says that Optopsis' work shows that he was a good man. He had engaging disposition and was certainly nobody's fool. He was, moreover, sincere, honorable, practical, and a man of simple faith. So in his work, The Schism of the Donatist, written about A.D. 367, he uh, defended the faith against Parminian's work, uh, Defense of the Donatist. And uh, I think we could have time just for a really quick quote here. Optopta um, says, quote, uh, you cannot deny that you are aware that in the city of Rome, the Episcopal chair was given first to Peter, the chair in which Peter sat, the same who was the head. That is why he's called Kephas. Of all the apostles, the one chair is which unity is maintained by all. Neither do the apostles proceed individually on their own, or anyone would set up another chair in opposition to the single chair, would be, in fact, be a schismatic and a sinner. It was Peter, then, who was the first to occupy that chair, the foremost of his endowed gifts. Uh, he was succeeded by Linus. Linus was succeeded by Clement. Clement by Anacletus. Anacletus by Everest. And so on, he continues on his line all the way down to his present day. He says, but I ask you to recall the origins of your chair, you who wish to claim for yourself the title of Holy Church. And that's one thing with the Donatist, is that they claim to be actually the historic church because they refuse to uh, allow the consecration of a bishop because of his sinfulness. Um, later on, Optoptus uh, also addresses baptizing and sacrament of baptism. And like I said, he was pretty much a minor, fra uh, minor fra uh, father till recently in apologetics over, as you guessed, papal succession, uh, papal primacy. And really, he has become at the forefront of defending the faith. And that is our early church father for today, St. Optoptus of Melibus. Coming up next... We're going to be chatting with our good friend Matt Swain, and we're going to be talking about St. Polycarp, another great. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And today is the feast day of St. Polycarp of Smyrna, very, very important early church father for explaining, defending the faith, a great early witness of the faith. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be doing that with our good friend, Matt Swaim. Matt, of course, grew up in a strong Christian family, attended United Methodist, Nazarene, and Free Methodist congregations. On his way to Catholicism, uh, he became Catholic and currently works for the Coming Home Network as of 2016. Primary role in working, coordinate, promote new videos, web content, and so forth from chnetwork.org. And he also does a program that's really cool with another regular here on the show, Ken Hensley. And it's On the Journey with Matt and Ken. And, of course, you know him as the host of Sunrise Morning Show on EWTN. And here he is, folks, the one, the only Matt Swain. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Gary Machuda, how are you? Oh, I am doing peachy keen, my friend. Uh, and uh, I'm also looking forward to our meeting every Thursday. You've been having me on your We've show. We've been having some fun with that, man. You, you're you yeah. taking everything. You know how like you get into a conversation and you have some small talk for a few minutes and then you dive into the real stuff? We yeah. get about four seconds of small talk on those segments. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hi, Gary. Uh, hi, Matt. Okay. Tell us about William of Ockham and why he was a fool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm having a blast. It's a lot of fun, and uh, it's it's so generous of you to to take that time and let me. Uh, oh, turnabout you know, spare place. See, this is all just excuses for us to talk and hang out with one another and discuss like the real stuff. I mean, that's really all these things are, and everybody's different platforms. So right, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And by the way, folks, you know when Catholic apologists get together. You ever wonder what we talk about? It's essentially that. It's like, hi, Matt. You don't have Gary. to wonder. We record most of it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But it's like, what about Polycarp of Smyrna? You know, it's it often goes back to like some really deep water really quick. I think so. I sat with you at a Steubenville Defending the Faith conference a couple years ago. And we were like up in that like cafe and you sit down and you think it's going to be like, yeah, so what do you think about the game this weekend? No, it's the same exact stuff. Yeah, exactly. Same exact stuff as we're talking about like right here. <laughs> Yeah, except we don't talk about games. We talk about debates or, you know, what's Same moving kind. and shaking. Yeah, Same kind. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if we're not talking about debates, we're talking about apostolic fathers, right? Works for me. Works for me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, today's a real important day. Today is the feast of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. And what a weird name, Polycarp, huh? I, I know it, right? Um, I didn't think to... Uh, look up exactly what that means. Uh, means many than, carps. It means many carps. I mean, all I know is that I know what the poly <laughs> means. I don't know what the carp means. I know what it means, um, you know, at the pond at uh, the local amusement park, but I don't know what it means, like, in the actual Greek. Somebody's going to, somebody's probably, like, furiously writing in the comments of this show right now to be like, ah, I know what means. <laughs> Um, Polycarp <laughs> is such an interesting case for so many reasons uh, when it comes to the early church. I do want to give a quick rundown of his story and then talk about some of the implications. So, okay. Um, he is born in the year, uh, around 69 AD. So bear in mind that if Jesus ascends in the mid thirties, he's not been ascended. It's basically a generation after Jesus has ascended, but not all the apostles have died. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, John, the apostle 
is still around. And uh, we know this because there's pretty reliable evidence that Polycarp was uh, possibly converted, but definitely mentored by John the Apostle. So you've got that uh, pedigree. We also got um, some stuff about uh, Polycarp written um, by St. Irenaeus when he's talking a little bit about, you know, putting his own forth, his his own credentials. St. Irenaeus is like, well, you know, I knew Polycarp, right? <laughs> um, yeah, right. So, and Polycarp knew John. Um, <clears throat> we got uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch writes uh, to Polycarp. So they, we've got a little bit of this, but, you know, as with many of the martyrs of the early church, we don't have a ton of what they actually did. Most of what we have is about how they died. And in Polycarp's case, um, again, he was from Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey, and uh, he was um, arrested. Uh, he wouldn't burn incense to the emperor, so they decided they were going to burn him. And uh, they take him and they put him in the arena. Um, he is set on the pyre and the flames, uh, you know, for whatever reason, are billowing out around him and they're not burning him. So eventually they actually stab him to death. There's a lot of martyrdom cases that are like this, like the first, to first time around doesn't work. Right. Um, yeah, doesn't yeah take. that's true. Carp's one of those. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it says, and this is this is an account um, from the Church of Smyrna on the martyrdom of St. Polycarp. I just want to read pieces of this because I think it's fascinating. And this is like some of the oldest stuff. As a matter of fact, Polycarp's martyrdom is the oldest reliable martyrdom that we have evidence for or an account of outside the New Testament. There were people that died before that, right? Mm -hmm. James the Apostle died, and that's recorded in the New Testament briefly, Stephen the Martyr and others. But outside the New Testament, this is the oldest reliable account. So here's what it says. Um, it says, When the pyre was ready, Polycarp took off all his outer clothes and loosened his undergarments. There and then he was surrounded by the material for the pyre. That's the pile of wood they were going to burn him on. When they tried to fasten him also with nails, he said, Leave me as I am. The one who gives me the strength to endure the fire will also give me the strength to stay quite still on the pyre, even without the precaution of your nails. So they were going to nail him to the wood pile so he didn't run. <clears throat> and he said, don't worry, I'm not going to run. And so I mean, this, that alone is yeah. like intense. If somebody's setting me on fire, I might be running. Um, but he looks up to heaven in this prayer we have from Polycarp. Uh, he says, Lord Almighty God, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom have come... Uh, to the knowledge of yourself, God of angels, of powers, of all creation, of all the race of saints who live in your sight, I bless you for judging me worthy of this day, this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ, your anointed one, and so rise again to eternal life in soul and body through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he goes on to say, I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through him, by glory to you, together with him, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. You hear the language, by the way. We we, we talk like this at Mass. Yeah. Right? right. Um, when he has said amen, the officials at the pyre lit it, but when the great flame burst out, those of us privileged to see it witness a strange and wonderful thing. Like a ship's sail swelling in the wind, the flame became, as it were, a dome encircling the martyr's body. Surrounded by the fire, his body was like bread that is baked, or gold and silver, white hot in a furnace, not like flesh that has been burned. So sweet a fragrance came to us that it was like that of burning incense or some other costly and sweet-smelling gum. So um, that's the account we have. And it's a pretty incredible account in so many ways, but it uh, really gives you 
a sense of Polycarp's courage, a sense of his confidence in Almighty God, a sense of the language that Christians were using to talk about God. Um, there's a lot that we have in this account of St. Polycarp's martyrdom. Yeah, yeah. Now, if memory serves me correctly, I believe that's like the earliest uh, account of a martyrdom outside of the New Testament that we possess. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's it's also um, one of the earliest uh, accounts we have of celebrating a feast day. So they grabbed his bones, um, and because his body was burned after he was stabbed to death, because uh, they couldn't burn it in the, at the time, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right, and. They preserve them, and every year on the day that he died, they consider that his birthday into heaven, and they would celebrate a special mass next to his bones. And so, February 23rd, going all the way back to, what year is it on here? 155 AD, we've been celebrating the Feast of St. Polycarp. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, talk about deep roots, and... and... Uh, yeah, there's just so many aspects to that. Uh, this whole idea of relics, you know, uh, it was like second nature for them to want to collect his relics and venerate them. And, well, and uh, I mean, yeah. and that's that's another way, you know, incarnationally, Christians think a different way, right? Because Christ right. is, you know, some of the people uh, alive um, in the company of St. Polycarp had parents who had known the apostles, right? Or had known perhaps even Jesus, depending on where they were. Like, uh, this is a reality that is not very far removed from these people. Right. This is like, if you knew your grandpa who was in, you know, your great grandpa who knew somebody who was in world war one, right. That feels like a, 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 an eternity ago, but it's not that long ago if you chain a couple generations together. So this is a definitely like a strong reality to, um, to these Christians, but also when, you know, you, you might bury a, a regular old person, even as a Christian, but you're thinking this is the body that stood in defiance of Caesar and, and confidence in Christ. Like this is the, this is the body that was not burned the first time they tried right? This is the body that baptized so many people in the church in Smyrna. These are the hands that baptized, right? These are the hands that were consecrated to therefore go forth and consecrate the Eucharist. Um, that it's not just like, well, I guess the body's gone. I guess he's really just a spirit at the end of the day anyway. So, you know, <laughs> great remembering you, Polycarp. No, it's like this stuff matters. Um, yeah. Yeah, true. It's not like he's any less a member of the body, or body of Christ when you're dead. And like you said, you know, God used them as an instrument here on earth, and therefore uh, God can still use them as an instrument, you know, even after he died, uh, miracles and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, another aspect, too, I, re I remember reading this in a book. I can't remember what the title is, but they said that basically when they had these public martyrdoms, like here with Polycarp and Ignatius, this was the modern equivalent of being like on live on network news. You know, if there was yep. a public event in the ancient world, it would be something like that. Yeah. And, uh, very often we, we know this was the case in a, a few, well, in a lot of, a lot of martyrdoms, but we know it was specifically the case and widely the case in, a handful of really marquee martyrdoms 
where it just spectacularly backfired on Rome. They set these people out to make examples of them and to to execute them as deterrents. Uh, Polycarp is one of the most famous accounts of that because he's one of the most early accounts where they put him out there and they're like, this is what happens to people who burn, who refuse to burn incense to Caesar. And instead people are like, I want to be like that guy. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, that, that's what happened. I mean, so you also have it with Ignatius of Antioch where they parade him through, chained to a bunch of soldiers through the empire being like, see, this is what happens when you defy Rome. And every time they stop along the way, Ignatius is writing more letters saying, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of these guys. Yeah. I considered an honor to die for Christ. And it backfires on the Roman Empire spectacularly. Same thing happens with St. Agnes. Um, St. Agnes, they're like, well, you refuse to be entered into this marriage. You know, you declared virginity and devoted yourself to Christ. Well, we're going to show what happens to people who do that. And instead, it just backfires. Everybody's like... They just killed an innocent girl for believing in this Jesus, and she didn't stop them. What is it about this Jesus? Same thing with Perpetua and Felicity. That's one of the other kind of like, if you're looking for the best sellers in the early church, I mean, those are some of the stories. Uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Agnes, Perpetua, Felicity. Absolutely. We're chatting with Matt Swain, talking about St. Polycarp of Smyrna. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with the great Matt Swaim, talking about St. Polycarp of Smyrna, who's today's this feast day. Matt, I, I got a question for you. Hopefully this isn't going to take you too far afield, but I know a lot of converts to the Catholic faith. Uh, they believe that uh, St. Polycarp was very instrumental in them becoming Catholic. Uh just uh, not only his martyrdom, but also his letter uh, to, uh, uh, boy, now it escapes me, his letter to the Philippians, I think it is? He wrote a letter to the Philippians. Okay, yeah, I got it right. Uh, mm -hmm. Did it impact you at all as you were looking at the Catholic Church? Yes, but I first encountered Polycarp in, um, not in a uh, a source text, right? I got it secondhand through Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I don't know if you know much about Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh, yeah. um, it was written as an English uh, sort of, well, basically, it was propaganda against the Catholic Church in England. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, all the stories of the great people who have given their lives for the faith over the years. And so they've got Polycarp and St. Stephen and a couple of others skip all the way ahead to all the people who were killed by Bloody Mary, right? Um and I was like, oh, these are the martyrdoms. Um, and uh, so I didn't really understand Polycarp in, in that sense. Now, however, I was in circles, and this was not necessarily something I always heard preached for the pulpit or never even heard necessarily preached explicitly, for, from, explicit, explicitly from the pulpit. I heard tell of it in kind of like casual conversations, and I've met lots and lots of people who, uh, who believe this, that after the death of the last apostle, sometime— after that, the whole church defected, right? There's a great apostasy. And I think part of the reason that Polycarp is powerful is because if you think that, you have to reckon with the case of Polycarp, right? And so a lot of Christians who go back into the early church, are they, they have to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do with Polycarp? Um, what does that say about what was going on with Christianity if this is how Polycarp was? So um, if you believe that Christianity went completely dark, 
um, after the death of the last apostle. You're left with three options, right? Unless unless you can think of a fourth, and you've probably tackled this, so you may have thought of a fourth. You're left with three options um, about Polycarp if you believe in a great apostasy. So one of them is that Polycarp was only a truly Christian martyrdom because he was killed while St. John the Apostle was still alive, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> if the— Okay. Uh, if— if Christianity goes off the rails completely um, and you've got a great apostasy, then the only reason that we can treat Polycarp like a Christian martyr is because St. John um, lives an unnaturally long life on Patmos, and who knows, he might still be alive. Some fundamentalists think it's a possibility, right? Hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can think like, okay, so perhaps— you can explain it away by saying, well, St. John hadn't died, perhaps. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he lived to be 170 or something. No, uh, so so that's option one, um, that he was only a truly Christian martyrdom because he was killed when St. John was possibly still alive. Second option is that Polycarp was a truly Christian martyrdom because the people the apostles taught really did convert to Christianity. This is an argument that Newman makes. Um, he's like, the most reasonable explanation is that the People whom the apostles converted converted to the religion that the apostles tried to convert them to, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Polycarp really did become a Christian, and he really did believe all this stuff. And perhaps all the apostles are dead. And if that's the case, then you got to move the date of your, your, your great apostasy to sometime after the death of Polycarp. The question is, how far ahead do you have to move it now? if Polycarp really is a, a reliable Christian martyrdom in 155 AD. Because mm -hmm. that already is a lot later than a lot of the great apostasy people are comfortable putting the date. Um, right. So, so you got to handle that. But the third one, uh, and this is the only third possibility, and that is that Polycarp being a generation uh, really removed from the apostles, actually more than that, um was not actually converted to Christianity, but he either misunderstood what St. John, his mentor, taught him, or willfully misrepresented what St. John, his mentor, taught him, and therefore he died not as a martyr for Christianity, but a martyr for some kind of Christian heresy. Hmm. That's what you're left dealing with, right? Yeah. Or option four, he was part of the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, which is still rolling strong <laughs> to the present day. Um, and, and we still remember his feast day. <laughs> and we still remember his feast day and have, uh, you know, for something like 1,800 years, right? So if you're a a person who comes from a Protestant world, and even if you just sort of abstractly thought like, oh, well, I'm sure it went off the rails sometime after the apostles died. Well, you can be, you can kind of have vague impressions of how that all went down, but you actually have documentation, like reliable documentation that you can look at to see whether or not it went down the way that you have an impression that it went down. And Polycarps is one of the first and really most stark examples of that documentation. Ignatius of Antioch, another great example of it, and not long after it, Irenaeus, who claims that he learned from Polycarp and Ignatius. So what do you do, right? If you think that there was no visible church, you got these guys talking about it like there is a visible church— if you think that it all went off the rails, you got these guys who are talking like they really do believe in the Trinity, right? Before the word Trinity even exists, um, you got to reckon with that. Uh, so, 
I mean, I had to reckon with it. I mean, he was one of the, he's probably one of my favorite examples just because his story is so epic. Um, you know, and Irenaeus, I love, but you know, he's not like summer blockbuster fair. Like Polycarp is like, no wonder this became a bestseller, man. I mean, he just like took it to the entire Roman empire and they killed him, but he won big, you know? So, uh, but, but you got to reckon with it. Um, yeah. Any serious yeah. Christian has to figure out what they're going to do, what what shelf they're going to put Polycarp on in their head. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of like pick your poison, isn't it? It's it, all the options except for the fourth. It doesn't seem to wash out, at least you... you You're you telling me that St. John the Apostle laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, uh, was there at the foot of the cross, took the Blessed Mother into his own home witnessed the crucifixion, witnessed the ascension, and then went and just absolutely just butchered his explanation of what had just happened. Wrote an amazing gospel, but couldn't explain for the life of him what Christianity was about to anybody. Yeah, right. Yeah, and not only that, you know, that, or maybe he was just such a bad teacher. I mean, because we know Polycarp was a disciple or a hearer of the Apostle John. Um, how do you explain, you know, he's able to, to write the gospel. He's, he has the Holy Spirit, right? That, uh, teach him all things and, and new things as well. And then the very first person that we meet, Polycarp, goes way off, you know, uh, off the edge. You know, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't. Especially when Polycarp is saying things like, um, I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you, God, through the eternal priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through him by glory to you, together with him and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. I don't sound like heresy to me, Gary. <laughs> I mean, let's... Yeah, uh, right. and even, even if he did, you know, Matt, th- to me, the real shocking thing is, and no one noticed, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, John uh, instructs Polycarp. Polycarp becomes a, a heretic. And no one noticed. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, I think that's kind of what John said. I'm not real sure. And John, the guy. Okay, so John, John, the guy who says things like, there is so much more I would like to tell you, but I would rather tell you in person, right? Hmm. (laughs) Well, he told Polycarp in person, right? Or um, there's so many things to be said about this Jesus of Nazareth that if you were to write them down, all the books and all the libraries in the world would not contain them. Well, Polycarp got a bunch of that stuff, right? Yeah. Polycarp not only learned the things that John wrote in his gospel, he learned a gajillion other things besides if he was hanging out with John, because John just straight up told uh, the people that he wrote the letters to, I got a lot more. When I see you, I'm going to tell you a lot more. Polycarp would have been one of those people. Yeah, and you also have John 17, the high priestly prayer. I think it's 17. Where Jesus mm-hmm. says that I, I pray not only for you but for those who will believe through your word. So, Jesus you know, praying for Polycarp, yeah, to be one. You know, like he is the like the son is with the father and the father is with him. Well, didn't didn't Jesus's prayer come true? I I didn't. Want, well, what about what, <laughs> what Paul says? That? Paul says to Timothy, you know, what I what you have received from me, pass on to other faithful men and teach them to pass it on to others. Yeah. You're telling me uh, if this great apostasy that the uh, um, last apostle dies, we'll say Paul dies even, and let's just say his line breaks. Like he writes this powerful 
uh, sending off letter to Timothy, what I have taught you, go train other faithful men in it. And Paul dies and Timothy's like, well, not doing that, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yep. you're telling me T- Timothy's an apostate? Because that that's what I have to believe if Timothy lived longer than the rest of the apostles. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are there people out there that actually have that kind of like, you know, once the apostles die, the, the plug, plug is pulled and it's just pure darkness? There are variations of it. Uh, um and not everybody takes the same approach to it. Uh, certainly Je- Jehovah's Witnesses will run with that kind of thinking. Um, Seventh-day Adventists have some, you know, kind of takes on that. The, uh, I got interesting in an interesting conversation with some Mormons, and I don't know enough about Mormonism to know if this is the actual official line, but this is how I asked them to explain it. Uh, so I, I, asked, I asked a weird question. I was like, so— Jesus passes on the keys to Peter and says, you know, the gates of hell won't prevail. And um, so Jesus passes his authority to Peter. Uh, would it have been possible for Peter, if he's given the authority of Christ, to use that authority, do the same thing to somebody else, like to pass on his authority to another person, to ordain somebody just like Jesus has ordained him? Because Jesus said, you know, as the Father has sent me, I have sent you, which logically means that Peter could do- go therefore and say, as Jesus has sent me, so I have sent you. And they were like, let's, let's get back to you on that. Can I come back to you on that? And I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> See you in a couple of weeks. They come back in a couple of weeks and they're like, well, we were trying to think of the way to explain this. Like maybe Peter passed on the keys, but it was more like he passed on instead of a key. It was like a keychain, And he only passed on a few of the keys from the keychain, and kept the important keys for himself. I'm like, how would you do that, Peter? <laughs> We're chatting with Matt Swain. We'll be right back right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with the great Matt Swain, talking about St. Polycarp, Smyrna, and how... Polycarp would fit into a Protestant worldview, and we were talking about the great apostasy right before the break. And yeah, Matt, you know, I I had some Mormons over my house as well, and uh, they they believe the great apostasy was actually happening during New Testament times, where Jesus was a good Mormon who taught Mormon doctrine, and uh, immediately they start come up with this Christian stuff. Yeah, so you got that, and. and- you know, in fairness to my Mormon elder friends, like I probably asked them something that they'd never probably heard asked that way, and they probably like stood up all night like arguing about like, the best analogy to, to discuss it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the, the Mormons. Analogy, I'm nicer to the Mormons than I am to like literally anybody. The Mormons love me. The J Dubs hate me. The S- Seventh Day Adventists are not big fans <laughs> of me. Um, Mormons love me. I give them like Cliff Bars and like yeah. seltzer waters and stuff. Um, nice, but yeah, so. <laughs> You know, I didn't believe in like a great. I mean, I had kind of impressions of that. I was reading some like apocalyptic end times literature, and a lot of that kind of like you know has a great apostasy mindset. And some some would say, well, the uh, the real great apostasy actually happened at you know when Constantine took over, right? And you got the church and the state together. Well, that's that's an interesting impression to have about history. But why is it that when Constantine takes over? 
he empowers the Christian church to say, no, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. He's not made out of similar substance to the Father. He's made out of the same substance as the Father, and we will die on that hill wherever you try to martyr us. That doesn't sound like apostasy to me, Gary. It sounds like doubling down on orthodoxy uh, when when Constantine comes to power. So, um, but yeah, you you go to the history and you 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 try and make these things you know make sense, and you realize that the record is pretty clear that you got a steady stream of orthodox Christianity coming through, coming through all of it. But even though, I mean, this is the other thing too that. Um, you know, martyrdom itself is in in some ways a kind of apologetic. Like not everybody who dies for something is dying for the truth. But there's certain things about Christianity that if it were not true, I feel like we would have some sort of account of like an actual recorded apostasy by somebody who shouldn't have apostatized. So like the 12 apostles, for example, um, I mean, John being the notable example who um, is exiled on Patmos, and we don't know exactly what happened to him at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Judas hangs himself. He's a suicide. Every other one of those guys is martyred. And you're telling me out of the remaining 10, including Matthias, actually, add Matthias to the mix, add Paul and Barnabas to the mix, because they're both called apostles as well. Um, I mean, just for the sake of argument. Or, you know, you add Mary Magdalene and Lazarus and, and some of these others who were there and saw all this and were witnesses to the resurrection. You're telling me that, like, as they're getting ready to pull off, like, Lazarus's eighth toenail, he's not like, stop, 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 stop. I swear, I, I, we made it all up. We made it all up. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Nobody, none of them, none of them recants. Um, we don't have a single account that I know of where one of those people who was a witness to the resurrection under pains of martyrdom said, no, sorry guys, we were just trying to remote this idea. Uh, it didn't really happen exactly like that. Like, we don't have any accounts of that. Um, right. In some ways, the, the, the courage of the apostles and the other people who witnessed the resurrection is kind of a proof of the resurrection. If it was a mass hallucination... It was such a thorough uh, and, like, completely all-encompassing mass hallucination to where, like, nobody was like, I don't know, I think I saw something else, guys. Like, we don't have any of that. They all took it to their martyrdom. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and their disciples as well. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to account for, especially when— you know, another thing, Matt, that we forget is in, in the ancient world, this idea of the resurrection of the body before the end of time. I mean, first, the resurrection of the body is only Jewish. I mean, the pagans thought it was dumb that you'd want to be reunited with your body. But even the Jews only believed that at the end of time. They didn't believe that, you know, the Messiah would raise, at least uh, only a minority would. So yeah. why die for something that no one really believes, you know, it's like there's this huge social pressure. You die to prove a point. Yeah. Right. To prove that you were serious. Um, I mean, 
that's yeah it's 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 you know mind-boggling to think that there's there's so many interesting things that the church says about martyrdom and how to even consider martyrdom as well um mm -hmm. because you know christian martyrdom kind of has a different flavor than martyrdom um or 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 self-sacrifice in, in in other traditions so like you've got um like self-immolation in some eastern traditions where you set yourself on fire as a way to renounce the world and to renounce uh, the created order or um, martyrdom in Islam <clears throat> very often can take the form of trying to kill others in the act of your death, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then you d distinguish that from um, even the question of suicide, right? Suicide is another way to end your life, as it were. Um, there's a great passage from Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy. I just want to read it because I think it really kind of gets at the heart of what makes Christian martyrdom different. What makes a guy like St. Polycarp different than a person who's like, it's not worth it to live anymore. Um, here's what Chesterton says. He says, a martyr is a man who cares so much for something outside him that he forgets his own personal life. A suicide is a man who cares so little for anything outside him that he wants to see the last of everything. One wants something to begin. The other wants everything to end. Polycarp doesn't go to martyrdom because he wants everything to end. He goes to martyrdom because he wants something incredible to begin. And to begin with, well, like, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it produces no fruit. But if it dies, right, it produces a great harvest. Um, and that's how Polycarp saw himself. I mean, there's like even like accounts that say that it smelled like bread was baking in there when Polycarp was being burned, right? Yeah, the aroma was that of like bread being baked in an oven. Like Ignatius of Antioch even like uses this language of being ground like wheat to make bread by the teeth of the lions. <clears throat> like the sense that something something big is starting here, um, not something tragic is ending here. Yeah, and uh, Eucharistic that's a big distinction. You know, yeah, deeply Eucharistic. Yeah, and also uh, the, the account with um, Mar uh, Polycarp is the smell of incense that. Mm -hmm. His death That's is, liturgical language, right? Yeah, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. There's some great stuff in the catechism on martyrdom as well. Um, I printed some of this stuff up. So we're all called to be witnesses, right? This is around paragraph 2471 and uh, 2, and then um, talking about the duty of everybody to be witnesses uh, to the gospel. But in 2473, it talks about martyrdom as the supreme witness given to the truth of the faith. Of course, martyr means witness, right? Mm. Um, but it says, it means bearing witness even unto death. The martyr bears witness to Christ who died and rose, to whom he is united by charity. He bears witness to the truth of the faith and of Christian doctrine. He endures death through an act of fortitude. Uh, Let me become the food of the beasts through whom it will be given to me to reach God. That's a quote from Ignatius of Antioch. Um and then it goes on in paragraph 2474 to say, The Church has painstakingly collected the records of those who persevered to the end in witnessing to their faith. These are the acts of the martyrs. They form the archives of truth written in letters of blood. And then it goes on to quote the big long passage that I quoted earlier from St. Polycarp. Like that big chunk of the account of St. Polycarp's martyrdom that I mentioned towards the beginning of the show, that's in the catechism, right? Mm -hmm. Polycarp is like the example that's used in the catechism to say this is what it looks like. Uh, this is you want to you want to know what a good martyrdom looks like. This is the one, right? Saint Polycarp. He knew exactly 
what this whole deal was about, and he went into it with incredible courage. And that's why the church, um, you know, we've had a lot of martyrs over the years, but Polycarp really kind of paves the way for all those martyrs um, in the post-New Testament world. I mean, we're talking about from, you know, those who would be killed under the persecution of the Emperor Diocletian to those who would be killed in, uh, you know, the Japanese martyrs, the Korean martyrs, the Vietnamese martyrs, um, the North American martyrs, you know, all of them. Um, Polycarp kind of, he's the... He's leading the charge through the pearly gates, you know, with the uh, with the martyrs. Um, he's the guy. Yeah. So in the catechism, when you look up martyrdom, it says, see Polycarp. Basically, basically. <laughs> they should just have like a picture of him. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Hey, Matt, uh, we got a couple minutes left. I want to talk about all the great stuff you're doing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about on the journey with Matt and Ken. Yeah, we just dropped a new episode today, Gary. And if you only watch like one other thing besides your own show this week, uh, you need to watch the the one that we dropped. So we just did five episodes where I just kind of recounted my own journey to the Catholic Church through Christian punk rock and like house churches and stuff. Um, but today we started episode one of Ken's story. And Ken has like the ultimate like late 70s, early 80s, like Billy Graham conversion story. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's great. And uh, he talks about, you know, being a little kid and having um, evangelist Jack Van Impey come to his little California church and play the accordion and getting saved. And then, you know, um, wow. I don't want to spoil too much because yeah. it's a great story. Um, we don't go into how he became a Baptist pastor yet in this episode. He talks about that next time around. And then he talks a little bit uh, later on about you know, some of the turning points that led him to the Catholic faith. But in this particular episode, it's just how he came to Jesus, as it were. Mm. So if you go to chnetwork.org slash on the journey, all that stuff is free. And you can watch all those episodes. Uh, community.chnetwork.org uh, is our online community, um, which is uh, basically a closed social network. I know that people don't like all the main social networks. Well, this is not connected to any of those. Um, it's our own closed social network full of people who are just on the journey, um, maybe some of them are converts. Maybe some of them are just kind of starting out. Maybe some of them are just, there's a lot of people who are coming back to the faith, um, after years and years away. And so it's a nice safe place to kind of have conversations. Um, so community.chnetwork.org. And then of course, if you go to chnetwork.org, just the main site, we got well over a thousand conversion stories, including your own episode, Gary of the journey home. If people want to check that out, so yeah, yeah it's a great resource and uh, and so many great stuff too, especially with the on the journey that you put together. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Gary, the time is always short. Yes, it is. And uh, man, the hour is flown indeed. Uh, coming up next, we have high impact Catholic talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse show. You don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing. We'll be back again tomorrow. I'll do this thing we call hands on. Bye bye, everybody.